Hello everyone, my name is Tom Stewart. And this is Riley McDonald. Welcome to Hammer Time. A new fangled podcast for old fangled horror. Today, we're going to be discussing the 1955 science fiction horror film, The Quartermass Experiment. Buckle up, ladies and gentlemen. It's Hammer Time Extreme Edition. Parasailing. Ollie's. Ray-Bans. BMX. GMX. Ghost riding. The Whip. Wakeboarding. Sick tricks, kicks, and flips. Go-Gurt. Have we got that out of our system? Never. Oh god, Riley, I can't live on the edge with you. So today we're going to be talking about a 1955 uh, movie, The Quartermass Experiment. The X, beyond our unfunny joke, the X does have some significance that we'll get into in a little bit. But this is a bit of a departure for the ham- uh, compared to the Hammer movies we've been discussing. It's not at all in the gothic style, and we'll come back to that in a moment. It's- See, I feel it actually fits in quite well with the trend that we've been doing of the first Hammer movie. We had our first episode which talked about a Hammer movie. The next episode talked about the first Hammer gothic movie. And now we've got the first Hammer horror movie. Which even then is a bit of a misnomer because there was that 1930s horror There were movie. a few horror movies before this, actually. But yeah, this was... we have many more firsts to come. We have so many firsts to show you. So what is this movie about, Tom? The plot of this movie is really quite simple. A rocket crashes in a field in England. An American scientist comes and announces that it is part of a larger experiment. The rocket belongs to Professor Quatermass, who has been running this experiment. Say it right. Experiment. Thank you. In which he has sent three American astronauts into space. But only one comes back. Uh, The other two are found later atomized in the hull of this ship. The one that comes back, it turns out, has not really come back either. He is a victim of a being that they've interacted with in space. And the rest of the movie plays out uh, his transformation as he wreaks havoc over London, absorbing other living creatures. And this movie came out at the height of the 1950s obsession with sci-fi monster movies. In 1954, the year before this movie came out, we had uh, The Creature from the Black Lagoon, Godzilla, Them, the British movie Devil Girl from Mars. Uh, in the same year as this, we had the This Island Earth, Tarantula, It Came from Beneath the Seas. Oh, sorry, I read one of these wrong. Tarantula, because it's got an exclamation mark at the end. And so this was a global phenomena. Godzilla, of course, is Japanese. This was something that the world was very much into at the time. But I think perhaps most influential for this movie was its original. Yeah, and while this doesn't have the same sort of um, uh, long textual history as movies like Dracula or Frankenstein do, um, it still is an adaptation of a previous story. In this case, it's the far less extreme um, BBC miniseries, The Quartermass Experiment from 1953, which was written by... Uh, Nigel Neal, who I think we would consider to be the sort of patron saint of our love of British horror, yes? I pray to him daily. He is so influential to British television in general. I believe he wrote the 1950s BBC adaptation of 1984. But in addition to that, he was heading so many science fiction and horror things at the television network, including a movie you really love, Tom, 1972's The Stone Tapes, a miniseries called Beasts, which has some truly horrific moments in it. And this series, The Quartermass Experiment and its later sequels, Quartermass 2, Quartermass in the Pit, and I think there were a couple others, were really 
major moments for the BBC. When the original Quartermass Experiment came out, it was a resounding success. It was one of the first major successes that cemented the reputation of the British public broadcaster as a creator of notable television. Mm -hmm. It was so successful that Hammer, which at this time was still struggling to find an identity for itself, instantly bought the rights to it and began working on producing um, this movie version. And this movie was one of the big successes for Hammer. It was one of their uh, first commercially accepted and one of their most critically accepted horror movies. It was what caused them to take that tack down the horror route, even though the rest of their horror ended up being of a very different tone than this was. But this was exceptionally successful, in spite of how the censors tried to rate it, giving it an X rating. In fact, it might have been because of that. Hammer ended up billing this as a more frightening version of the public phenomenon of Nigel Neal's show. Yeah, uh, so again, we have an example of the stuffy British censors, registering their outrage with uh, what Hammer was trying to do. I have a quote here from the censor that says, I must warn you at this stage that while we accept the story in principle for that X category, we could not certificate, even in that category, a film treatment in which the most horrific element was so exaggerated as to be nauseating and revolting to adult audiences. And what Hammer did, kind of ingeniously, is rather than shy away from this X rating, they played it up. That's why the uh, the movie is spelled Quartermass Experiment. It's really highlighting that transgressive nature of this. And people really enjoyed it. They flocked to it. This was uh, only the 12th movie to historically receive an X rating in Britain under that certificate. And this was definitely the first one to play that up as a plus side. And in billing it as a more frightening version of the original, they of course had to take liberties with the original. Which we're getting from the internet, partially because we've never seen it, partially because few people have ever seen it. They're the only, only the first two episodes of six still survived. The rest were never recorded or they don't exist anymore. But it, it's obviously a much more leisurely paced story than this one. The opening moments of this movie, which take place in a farmhouse that ends with the rocket ship crashing onto the land, uh, that was an entire episode. Um, a lot more subplots and character dynamics are obviously cut, but really the big difference is in how they portray the character of Bernard Quartermass. And please forgive us as we stumble through the pronunciation of Quartermass throughout the entirety of this podcast. I can guarantee you we're never going to say it the same way twice. Quartermass, who in the British version is a very sensitive, um, avuncular scientist. He can be grouchy, but he's um, pacifistic and curious about discovery and the nature of the universe. He's, you can think of the early Doctor from Doctor Who. Or who was explicitly uh, modeled after Quartermass. And in fact, Nigel Neal ended up hating Doctor Who specifically because he felt that his character, Quartermass, had been ripped off. In contrast to this sort of like sensitive and curious scientist, the version of Quartermass we get in this movie played by um, Brian Dunleavy. Uh, American actor Brian Dunleavy is the complete opposite. He's a hard-headed, rude, officious man who has no interest in debating or studying things. He, he constantly claims that what he's doing is for science, but he has he doesn't seem to have any interest in sharing it with the outside world. And he has this sort of monomaniacal um, pursuit of this nebulous goal, it doesn't matter how uh, who he hurts in pursuit of this. And 
maybe the the biggest departure in character another thing Nigel Neal really didn't like was that the climactic scene in the television series is about um, Professor Quartermass confronting this alien being and convincing the little bit of humanity that's left inside it to destroy itself before this creature can mutate out of control and sort of um, infect the entire world. In this movie, um, Brian Dunleavy's Quartermass has no such empathy. As soon as he's able to track down the monster, he uh, electrocutes it to death without any attempt at communicating with it. And even the movie seems to see this as a horrific change. At the end, when the creature is being electrocuted, it unleashes a horrific and very human scream that lasts for a good five or six seconds. And if this cold scientist not recognizing the consequences of his um, actions sounds familiar to you, dear listener, that's because this movie has a lot in common with the Frankenstein story once more. Yeah, this movie is very much drawing on the Frankenstein mythos of a scientist who refuses to take responsibility for his creation and is simply interested in studying it for his own personal gain rather than the gain of humanity. Just as an aside, like this movie is often compared to Frankenstein, the universal Frankenstein, obviously Curse of Frankenstein hadn't been filmed yet because the the monster in the movie, the astronaut Victor Caroon, who comes back um, changed, has many moments that um, echo Frankenstein's monster. He's tall and um, gaunt and grotesque. He never speaks. Yeah, this is a Frankenstein monster who sows other people into him. He absorbs other creatures rather than having the scientist create him from other creatures. And there's a very significant scene in the middle of this movie where the the character of Karun is walking along the waterfront and encounters a little girl whom he engages with. Fortunately, this one ends a little bit differently. He doesn't end up throwing her in the water and drowning her. He just walks off. So this movie is very clearly drawing attention to its Frankensteinian parallels. There's even a scene in the middle of the movie where Victor Karun is put in a doctor's chair and is being held up by a headrest that very specifically mimics the bolts in the neck of the original Universal Frankenstein. I think what's more interesting than these parallels with the monster figure, and again, this this monster is kind of given the short shrift like Christopher Lee's is in The Curse of Frankenstein, is that callous scientist role uh, that Quartermass is here that so echoes what Peter Cushing will do with Victor Frankenstein in a couple years. Quartermass has an interesting parallel to Frankenstein, specifically in the ethics of his scientific discourse. He consistently justifies his uh, decisions and his actions by the fact that he is a scientist and that he is doing research, but really he takes very few steps to actually research what is going on with Karun, or offer a solution to Karun's problem. He is far more interested in acquiring knowledge for his own sake rather than for the sake of humanity itself. And in this way, as an unscientific, unethical pursuer of knowledge, he is a Dr. Frankenstein updated for the Cold War period. It's pretty difficult to talk about this movie or any other kind of um, 1950s creature movie without in some way reflecting on the Cold War, because this is, at least this is the way they're always read. Movies like The Thing from Another World or Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which won't come out till the year after this, but all those big movies where you think of an invasion from space or from the deep sea, in the case of Godzilla, it's always reflecting on post-World War atomic 
Cold War fears. Yes, but whereas many of the movies at that time are expressing an anxiety toward an us versus them mentality where the good guys are being infiltrated by an other, a very America versus the Soviet superpower relationship or dichotomy, this movie is trying to nuance that setup. Yeah. What we see here is a British anxiety to being paired with this superpower of America. Russia does not come into it. The Soviets do not have a representative. Brian Don Levy's Quatermass is the representative of America, and he's portrayed as somebody who is tech-happy, uh, completely uninterested in the fallout of his experiments or really any ramifications for anybody other than himself. Yeah, he, like America at this point, answers to no one and looks down on the sort of nebbish and humanistic uh, Britons who populate this movie. Quartermass is this loose cannon scientist without any sort of higher ethics reining him in. The British characters, however, are portrayed as very civilized. The main doctor who is assisting Quatermass, Gordon Briscoe, is always drinking tea. He's always thinking very rationally. He is going into the fray, but is portrayed as a much cooler head than uh, Brian Dunleavy's Quatermass. What's kind of interesting about this and other British Cold War narratives that I've encountered is that it's more a self-reflective anxiety about British identity after the end of Empire than anything. So the, the other thing I can think of, it's not horror, but John le Carre's novels, uh, which are always about British um, entanglements with Soviet agents, are really about how weak and ill-equipped the British um, intelligence services are in the face of these two superpowers. And Britain, or the UK, is aligned with the United States. But even then, it's like watching these two giants fight above you. Like in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the British uh, Secret Service is so compromised that it's uh, that Russia, that the Soviets aren't even really interested in them because they know everything about them. It's all this sort of ploy to get the real gem, which is American intelligence. So really these British Cold War stories are about, rather than this sort of us versus them binary, they're really about this sense of the loss of power. Yeah, if there is a Cold War paranoia here, it is a paranoia not towards the Soviets. It is a paranoia towards being bundled up into a conflict in which they are completely now outmatched. And in with that fear is a fear of being lumped in with the Americans, of having their identity suddenly merged with this culture that they're not entirely comfortable with. And I think this actually goes into the monocle-popping censors that we've been talking about consistently who were watching these films. These films that Hammer was producing, including this one, were sold as teen fare across the ocean in America, whereas this was considered very frightening for the British audience. There was a distinct culture difference here that was slowly eroding. And the movie almost courts this comparison between American and British cultures by filming in a cinema verite style, something very reminiscent of the American noir movies that were coming out at the same time, something that uh, alluded to a newsreel style of presentation. In spite of the um, the sort of similarly gobsmacked reactions that the censors had to all these movies, Quartermass Experiment is very is a very different animal 
from the Curse of Frankenstein and the Horror of Dracula and the movies that come after. Yeah, Hammer's horror is often based out of an aesthetic, uh, a mood that they try to create. And for the most part, their horror was dominated by the Gothic aesthetic until they got into Ninja Dracula's. This movie's style, however, is demonstrably different. It is meant to look like newsreels of the time. It's supposed to have a gritty reality to it that makes this believable. Yeah, and it helps that the film is shot on location in areas in London, and the film takes place in these areas, so it's meant to evoke this kind of recognition when the characters are running throughout downtown London trying to stop this monster, rather than the more stylized and and geographically displaced um, areas in Hammer's gothic fictions. The compressed Europe of Frankenstein and Dracula. Even the color being in black and white, (laughs) even the film stock being in black and white accentuates the difference from the later movies that were so focused on the red tints of blood. And this cinema verite style picks up on a certain reality that is at the heart of this movie. This is sci-fi, but sending manned rockets into space by 1955 was a definite possibility. Really, the only science fiction aspect of this movie is the space ghost virus that interacts with the astronauts and is brought back down to Earth. Karun, the monster astronaut, is hunted through London by good, solid police work. Quatermass does not have a sonic screwdriver or psychic paper like the later version of himself will have. He simply follows the clues, uh, and when he finally finds the monster... He just electrocutes it with a few cables. There is no gadgetry, no pseudoscientific solution to the monster. They just deal with it in a very plain, matter-of-fact way. What this really does, I find, um, as you said, Tom, everything else feels so realistic and tied to an almost um, news report kind of reality that it accentuates the fundamental unknowable otherness of that monster. And this, I think, is where we can get into a conversation about how to categorize this film, because Hammer is, of course, famous for the gothic. This movie is drawing very heavily on Frankensteinian elements that are known to the public, but this movie, I don't think, could be linked to the gothic. I think this movie is far more interested in something that we could call the weird. Original idea, do not steal. (laughs) So who wants to do the definitions? What do you mean, Tom? (laughs) Well, you've talked about the Gothic before as being about excess and inheritance, and really it seems like the Gothic's um, focus, its thematic obsession, it has to do with taboo and the breaking of rules that are laid down. Right, the crossing of a boundary in order to interact kind of with the other that's on the other side. And to a certain extent, Weird is also interested in interacting with an other, but Weird is much more interested in a failure of that interaction. There's no taboo in the Weird that you're crossing over. You're not engaging in incest, you're not doing something deviant. The Weird is much more interested in dramatizing a human interaction with something that a human cannot understand, something that is unknowable, something that you cannot fully interact with. Certainly, and so examples of this would include uh, the writings of H.P. Lovecraft or Ridley Scott's 1979 movie Alien. Ambrose Bierce, if you're a snob. What these texts are all about is sort of foregrounding 
the limits of not just human knowledge, but human existence. There are things that are so much more grandiose than we can possibly get our heads around that the attempt to do so will at best lead to failure and at worst will lead to irrevocable madness and death. It's heavy stuff. Heavy stuff. So this movie doesn't really attempt to explain what this being that um, the astronauts encounter is. Quartermass offers an explanation that it's some sort of bodiless force that passed through the um, rocket ship, but it seems a really kind of weak explanation. He says it kind of happens accidentally, and he can't explain why it destroys the two astronauts, but transforms Karun. He says that this force is sort of living inside Karun now and causing him to mutate. But again, this seems more guesswork than anything. The film seems to accept that this is just unknowable and makes no attempt to actually explain what is going on. And that is a hallmark of weird fiction. And I think this ties into the final horror sting of this movie, which features Brian Dunleavy claiming that he's going to try again. Like, literally, as soon as Quartermass destroys this monster, he says he's going to do the experiment again, meaning he's going to launch another rocket into space. But even though, so Quartermass is aware of the dangers that somewhere right outside Earth's atmosphere is this bodiless thing that's floating around, and he has no idea if he's killed it or what has happened. Quartermass does not know if he has fully defeated this creature. He does not know if there's more of them out there. There is a foreboding tone to him walking off into a very shadowy street at the end of the movie, and then we see a rocket going off into space. And the anxiety that this is staging is that despite having come up against something fundamentally unknowable, the scientist figure cannot help but continuously interact with that unknowable object, that we are driven to know or try to know these things by a scientific discourse with little interest in ethics or meaning. Yeah, that kind of meaninglessness, I find, coats this movie and makes it really, in a lot of ways, different from much of the science fiction we encounter. And certainly that's what, you know, Tom says puts it more in the horror category. Science fiction is so often about engaging with other possibilities. So to stretch a bit of our academic muscle here. The theorist Darko Suvin, who talks about science fiction, says that science fiction's revolutionary aspect is about cognitive estrangement. It can create worlds and situations that are so far outside of what we encounter in our day-to-day -day life that it gives us a spark of possibility beyond our own life and our own circumstances. And Frederick Jameson, another theorist, talks about this as well, this sort of impulse toward utopia that pushes back against the, in his uh, reading of science fiction, the capitalist um, structures that we all live in day to day. And even I find with, with some, you know, more uh, dystopian speculative fiction, something like 1984, Brave New World, these, these texts that are about this impossibly powerful and undefeatable structure, whether it's authoritarianism or this kind of um, like um, this sort of strange hedonistic neoliberal capitalism in Brave New World, the characters, Winston Smith and Burden Barks, are able to think outside of their own situations, places beyond the kind of nightmarish landscapes they live in. What I find interesting about the Quartermass experiment is it doesn't give us an alternative. We have this 
unknowable and threatening alien species that causes our bodies to break down and just become overcoated with things until it's no longer recognizable. Yeah, it becomes this creature without any categories as it's drawing from everything from plant life to humanity to all of the animals in the zoo until it ends up looking like this giant octopus creature that the production crew made out of tripe. So on the one hand, you have this fear, the fear of the external invader. But on the other hand, you have Bernard Quartermass, who is not a figure of progress or humanity. He's this scientist who is just going to repeat over and over again the same actions. There's this eerie sense of meaninglessness going on. And to return to your comment that there is no way to imagine oneself out of this, the text offers us very few images of happiness in Britain. Britain appears to be far more civilized than its American counterpart, but what images of British life do we see? A woman who is so drunk that she thinks that she's hallucinated the Karoon monster. We see a TV broadcaster who is quite capable of going on with his own TV broadcast, despite having had a man drop to death right at his feet from hundreds of feet in the air. Yeah, this is definitely a kind of show must go on, or even if the world is falling apart around you. We see a cop whose wife is consistently saddened by the fact that he doesn't come home for dinner because he's working uh, repetitively way too late into the night. And not just on this case, it's supposed to be a behavior that he's consistently doing. Is there anything else? Not really. It's, it's what you said. What I like is these sort of like repetitive cycles. And that's what Quartermass is doing. So in a way, this movie is really extremely bleak. It shows on the one hand, the meaninglessness of repetition. And on the other hand, this chaotically morphing being that is just as meaningless and unknowable. Nothing is attached to any greater purpose. Science is shown to be this degraded art that's used only for selfish purposes, and the larger universe is shown to be threatening and destructive to the human body. There's no imagining an outside here. It really seems to be a movie about meaninglessness, but not that people make meaning out of meaninglessness, a sort of existential um, philosophy, more that people will just keep repeating patterns in the face of meaninglessness, even if it brings about destruction. So another cheery podcast from the likes of Riley and Tom. Before I go and stare into a corner for the rest of the evening, let's make some more recommendations. What is your favorite transformation movie? For me, my pick would have to be David Cronenberg's 1983 film, Videodrome, which really plays up the complete degradation of the human body. I'm not in a I'm not in the cheeriest of moods today, I guess. <laughs> yeah, this is a movie about a guy who is becoming a, a television or no, that's that's explaining it wrong. Eh, there's really no way to explain it except that it has really grotesque body horror, a man's hand becoming this sort of it's it, this is difficult to explain. A man's stomach eats a videotape at one point. That's all I can really say. It's an it's an awesome movie. How about you, Tom? <laughs> I'm going to put in all of your failed attempts to explain it, because I think that is the perfect explanation. For me, I would say John Carpenter's 1982 movie, The Thing. It's a movie that has a number of similarities with this movie as a transformation movie. It features an alien presence that is unknowable, coming down to Earth, interacting with humans, and it features a similar breakdown of categories as these humans' bodies are, and dog bodies, are rebuilt by the alien, but in 
very strange body horror style ways. With the best special effects. Ever. Yeah, with some of the best practical effects you'll ever see in a horror movie. It is a great movie. I don't think it needs my recommendation. It's pretty famous on its own. But I would say that was the one that I was thinking of most when I was watching Quatermass Experiment. Sorry, X Experiment. Excellent work, Tom. Which I think brings us to the end. If you have any suggestions, questions, comments, please get in touch with us. We're on Facebook at Hammer Time Horror Podcast. We are on Twitter at Hammer Time Cast. And you can find us on Tumblr at hammertimehorror.tumblr.com. Next time, whenever that will be, uh, we'll be tackling the 1960 movie, The Curse of the Werewolf. Which I suppose will be another transformation movie. Until then, my name's Tom Stewart. And this is Riley McDonald. Thank you for listening to Hammer Time. Extreme Edition, Gogurt, Hang Ten, Slam Dunks, 360, Backflips, 540s, Light Up Shoes, Picnics, Roller Skating, but without knee pads, A Nice Day at the Beach, Jinko Jeans, The Symphony, Sales at the Pottery Barn, A Raise, Oxford Shirts, Ikea, Silly Cats, Podcasts. Okay, I think we're done here. Thank you.